Hey. Okay. How do we start? This um, is a podcast. Are we in a podcast right now? We're inside it's ha- it's a happening. podcast. It's happening. <laughs> We've created the podcast space around ourselves. <laughs> it is online. We're in the bunker. We're on the island. <laughs> I don't, we are on the island. I want. We are on the, the island. I've been trying. We're on the island. I've been trying throughout the podcast to find like a a metaphorical space for us to exist in mm. on the podcast. Obviously, we're on the island. And obviously, it's an island because this is Survivor this is Team Survivor Go. Team Go. This is the a Survivor fan cast Island. Of the <laughs> show Survivor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're in uh, Fiji or something. I don't know. So, have you considered the end of every podcast? Borneo. You can hold a Tanzania. vote and vote off your guest, and that's why they don't return. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Yes. I'm sorry, that was really great, but we voted against oh, we're it. Oh voting my god, against perfect! <laughs> yes. This is oh so good! God. So, this is Survivor Team Go. No, I'm Bailey. And I'm Oliver. I'm Jay. And this is Survivor, Survivor Team Go! Go. <laughs> So this is actually pretty appropriate to like a um, show about trauma. Um, so our dog hates human emotion of all kinds. Oh, yeah. So anytime somebody in the house is crying or angry or in any way elevated, he will go hide in the other room. But like not in like a scared way, just in like he's like awkward. <laughs> he's like, I don't want to deal <laughs> with this like, right now. I'm going to let you figure this out by yourself yeah. he's for the a while. Of a therapy dog. <laughs> Like, I'm going to give you some space, and you can just figure it out. And when you're done, I'll come back. Mm-hmm. He's just overwhelmed. Yeah. Well, we want to welcome Jay to the podcast today. Welcome, welcome Jay. Welcome to the island. Welcome, welcome to, to the Survivor Island, welcome Jay. To Survivor Island. All right, well, I'm not here to make friends. Um, <laughs> but... I'm here to win. I'm here to win. Are you going to here to win the podcast, Jay? Yes. Okay, well, Obviously. we'll see how you do. We'll yeah. rate you on at the end. We'll see what happens at the end. Mm-hmm. Jay's going to be our featured survivor today. He's our first interview. Hooray. Hooray. Don't lift your arms up. <laughs> I was going to high five somebody, <laughs> oh. but I decided against it. Yeah. Nobody Cheerio. make any sudden movements. We'll upset Cheerio. <laughs> <laughs> she, if we ever do develop like a fan base, they're going to be so terrified of our of like the reputation of our dog. <laughs> she did try to kill a Doberman earlier today. That's true. She did. Yeah, she, she was did. a really beautiful looking Doberman. We were at food. Was. Was. No, the dog is fine. <laughs> no, fine. We were at food truck Friday. We almost tripped some humans, though. They almost they, fell. Yeah. And they didn't seem to care because later I saw one of them petting her. So sh- 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 they were clearly like, oh, what a cute little murderous dog. Yeah, everybody seemed like weirdly okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Greitens, is, his official trial started. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Yeah, he sucks. Greitens update, his trial has begun. New, that brings Damn us to our next Greitens. point. Our next, our next uh, segment: news and updates. News and updates. You guys remember way back when when Juno Diaz came out with his New Yorker article, and we were really we like were, we were like crying about it. Well, we were crying about it, and we were also like, let, now let's women really now bad. let's talk about the problematic aspects of the way he talks about his relationships with women in his article. Well. It's been, like, what, a month since he came out with that article? And quite a few women have come forward to talk about 
him. Well, okay. So I don't know. Uh, quite a few women. Ha- okay. What I have heard, the summary of what I have heard is there's been a lot of articles responding to the problematic stuff that's just within his New Yorker essay and talking about like his healing comes at the expense of the healing of other survivors who are women that he's dated or whatever um, or like fucked around with. And, but the reason I even started like looking into this was because at least one person came forward and was like, so he cornered me after a conference and just sort of like kissed, like started kissing me, like forcing, like, like kissing, kissing this woman. I don't know. And another person was like, uh, talking about being an abuse survivor or something. I, uh, I don't know. And he like shut her down really angrily. And has had a history of, like, silencing his female colleagues. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what we were talking about when we were talking about the problematic parts of the article, was just how he talks a lot about his own suffering, and he doesn't talk too much about... I mean, he talks about his girlfriends, his ex-girlfriends, and, like, how much he cheated on them. And he talks about their them being, like, women of color. They talks about, like how he liked that about them. And he uses, like, the he quotes Toni Morrison, and he quotes Audre Lorde, and he quotes these, like, black women uh, as, like, inspiration for him. I know he also really likes Octavia Butler, who's a black sci-fi author, because mm-hmm. um, I've heard him talk about her before. And he, like, has used the, these, like, women's words about... Uh, there's a really good article where that I was just on. Um, Is it the one where a lot of, like people in academia because he's a professor (coughs) where's he a professor at i don't know a lot of like women who've come to him like as students he's really shut them down like there's a lot of accusations of like uh him being really sexist and not listening to the opinions of women which is like par for the course in academia i mean that was always my experience the the big wig kind of you know, big professor guy, he's famous, and he doesn't, he's only interested in you if you want to fuck him. Um, yeah, when this all came out, I was kind of, like, not surprised. And, yeah. like, like when the first, the Juno Diaz article, the original one, first came out, and everyone was telling me to read it, and I did read it, but, like, I, I didn't want to state this because a lot of people were getting tons of meaning. And it is, I think it remains a meaningful article, like, despite its problematic nature and despite the problematic person who wrote it. Um, But I didn't want to be the person, like, I didn't feel like it was my place necessarily, but, like, my experience of Juno Diaz is primarily through his work. And there's, like, so much sexism in his work. And, like, Mm -hmm. there is a degree to which he's actively exploring it. But nevertheless, like... It just does not surprise me to see that that's embodied in his life. Like, because his works feel very autobiographical in a lot of ways, especially, like, This Is How You Lose Her, which is very much about toxic masculinity and sexist men. But, like, not necessarily from a viewpoint that is very self-aware, I don't think. Yeah. There's a really great article that I found on, like, Sister of the Yam, or Sis of the Yam, a WordPress site. Anyway, it says... Uh, in the article, she talks about like being raped by a fellow law student, and then she also talks about this essay that this that Juno Diaz wrote, and like the problematic nature of being like a woman of color who's a survivor, but like has been treated mistreated by, uh, like a man of color who she knows is at in great risk if she pulls anything forward again comes forward and like, you know, 
makes these accusations about him, um, but also that it's going to destroy her, too. Like, anyway, she says this about Juna Diaz's essay. She says, I do not think of this post as a critique of his essay, which readily concedes the labor of women in Diaz's healing process. In fact, I do not know if I can bring myself to fully critique Diaz when he is looking, lifting up his mask and pulling up from his lungs his most hidden vulnerable self. This is the man who wrote me into writing before his stories became novels. But Diaz chooses to focus on how his rape impacted his romantic relationships with women. He emphasizes the importance of disclosing his rape to his current partner, who is a woman, his devoted therapist is a woman, and the authors he turns to for courage and solace, Audre Lorde and Toni Morrison, are women. Diaz could have written, easily written his story about the way he wrangles with male connection, but his essay is as much about women as it is about male hurt, and so... In my mind, at the urging of Diaz, this post is more an exploration of the essay's initial premise. It is time to talk about the expectations of women of color to pick up the pieces of broken men, even as we ourselves are breaking with our silence, our patience, our understanding, our endurance, and sometimes our lives. This story, this article is really good. It goes into a lot of stuff, uh, but it's called Please Do Not Ask This of Me, uh, thinking, of Juno D- or thinking of Juno, and it's on um, Sister of the Yam. It's really good, and she has a really good quote by Zero Neil Hurston at the top. But it's like basically talking about like the burden of that is placed on women of color, like exactly what is problematic about his article. It's like it's beautiful, but he's like placing his emotional brokenness at the feet of these like women who have themselves already like suffered similar kinds of things. <laughs> so I was just thinking, if you like, I was thinking about like how my dad was definitely like a, my dad sexually abused me as a child and he was definitely a sexual abuse survivor. And I think it may have been his mother. I don't know for sure, but I like strongly suspect it was my grandmother. And, uh, I was very much raised. And you share a name with like the, having to shoulder the burden of the emotional fallout of his abuse. And that was what created, quote unquote, I mean, he created the abuse that I went through. He was my abuser. But I feel like that, you know, in in the Venn diagram of survivors, there's a smaller circle. There's a big survivor circle. And then there's a smaller abuser circle. And it's almost completely inside of the survivor circle. And there's just a little tiny sliver that's outside. Like every abuser is a survivor. Almost. Almost. Yeah. And what is the line? You know, like I want to support survivors. That's what this podcast is about. But at what point do you say you've, you've crossed into the line of abuser? And at what point do you go too far? You know, I was literally talking to my mom about this like yesterday, I think I was telling her, you know, well, I think that you abused me. You used to chase me down when I was like three or four and pull my pants down and beat me so hard that I had welts on the back of my butt. And I think that that's abuse. But I'm like, I forgive you for that. I don't hold that against you. I don't hate you for that. But the things that my father did to me are unforgivable. Right. And it's, you know, it's sort of like this. We want it to be so binary. You know, we want it to be good and evil. We want Juno Juno Diaz to either be a hero or a villain. And nobody's like that. And it's never that easy. Everybody's complicated. Um, Even outside the realm of abuse, I think think among men in general, but particularly men who are survivors of any kind of 
abuse, trauma, or mental illness, like it's incredibly common for them to look to women to be therapists <laughs> and to do all the emotional labor because men aren't taught how to handle their emotions and men are taught that it's not safe to go to other men. Um, and healthcare is hard to access and discouraged. And so eventually you get to this place. I mean, that's kind of what's at the root of the manic pixie dream girl in a lot of ways is that, oh, she's beautiful and an object and she'll fix you. <laughs> and it's like, that's not fair and it's not right. Even if it's not necessarily like a bright line abusive thing, like it's, it's asking women to do things they shouldn't have to do. <laughs> You know, and then asking them to support way more their share of a relationship than just, you know, their half or however you want to define that. That's So I read this really fantastic article earlier today um, in The Atlantic. Oh, so good. David. And it just I just bring it up because just this woman, um, Megan Garber, uh, just like summed up literally everything we were talking about. Mm-hmm. In this one article about David Foster Wallace. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I heard about this. David Foster Wallace and the Dangerous Romance of Male Genius. So she talks about, um, well, she starts out talking about Eric Schneiderman, uh, which is also like shitty survivor news, you guys. Eric Schneiderman, uh, false ally of women, professed like women's rights advocate. It turns out to be like a psychotic, abusive, rapist, racist monster. And... A bunch of people have kind of been saying on Twitter, apparently, the women who've come forward with these accusations about Schneiderman, like people are, like people in the Democratic Party, I guess, are like, I don't know who they are. This is just what I've heard uh, or read in the article. People are saying uh, that you shouldn't come forward with these accusations because he's too valuable of a political ally for women to lose. And I'm like, that's... Just not even, I mean, that's exactly what, like, the sort of thing that I was afraid would happen mm-hmm. as part of, like, the result of this whole Me Too movement thing that's happening. But I wanted to read a quick quote from this article that Megan Garber writes, Schneiderman, as a matter of policy, Schneiderman's the attorney general that has been, he's... Of New York. Yeah, of New York, and he's just, like, stepped down after these accusations came forward just recently. Uh, Schneiderman, as a matter of policy, may have been a professed ally of women and, indeed, of the aims of Me Too. That changes nothing about the accountability he bears for his alleged behavior or about the right of the women to seek a small measure of justice through the telling of their stories. But the absurdity itself was revealing about the moral compromises so many people are willing to make in the name of broader political progress, about the ways women in particular are asked, still, despite it all, to be accommodating and compliant and convenient, about the fickle avenues of our empathies. And I really think that sums up accommodating, compliant, and convenient. That's what people have always wanted me to be as a person perceived to be a woman, And I was also thinking about, I was just listening to a podcast, I don't remember what it was, but they were talking about uh, the way domestic violence is handled in the, was it the Born Again Christians? There was just, there were a bunch of women that just signed a petition to remove a guy, no, it's the Baptists, it's the Southern Baptists. Southern, Southern Baptist. Baptist women just signed a petition that they want to remove this guy as like a, he must be pretty terrible. A, a leader of the Southern Baptists. And one of the stories that a, a woman came forward and said, she said that she was being abused by her husband and that she went to him for help. And he was like, 
you just, you have to pray for your husband. And she went home and her husband beat her. And somebody was saying that this was a story that this guy, I should look up his name. I should, we should call out all the abusers. Um, Somebody was saying that this is a story that this guy was telling. So this dude, he was saying, you know, this woman came to me and she wanted me to help her with her abusive husband. And I said, well, just pray, just pray for him, you know? And then she went home and she came back and she had two black eyes and she was like, well, are you happy now? And I said, well, yes, ma'am, I am happy. And what she didn't know about it was that uh, he was in church that day. He came and stood in the back first time he'd ever come to church. So her prayers were heard. And like the whole thing that I heard there was the exact attitude of my entire life, my entire childhood, which is that you exist as a woman to bear the burden of men's violence. You exist to bear it so society won't bear it. You exist to bear it for the men. You exist as just to be a compliant, soft receiver of that violence, to soak it up, and take it away so no one else will be inconvenienced by it. And that's your role. Yeah, I just wanted to say, like, I am somebody who hangs out uh, adjacent to a lot of uh, ex-evangelical communities online for reasons that are going to become pretty clear later, probably. And the story you just told is, like, and not to diminish it at all, because it's an awful, affecting story, but, like, I've heard thousands of that exact story. Like, like it is actually like the at, at a certain level of, the, of of evangelicalism, that is the standard response to domestic abuse. And and first of all, they don't believe in marital rape usually, as as basic yeah. as possible. But um, but it's consistently they told me to go back to my husband who was beating me. They told me just to go back and pray for him, that it was my fault that he, that he was beating me or that I needed to pray harder or that it was my job to save him. Um, you hear this very consistently. It's, it's a story I've heard dozens and dozens of times from dozens and dozens of women. I mean, it's part of the culture of abuse that we live in right now. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not just like the South. It's not just like evangelicals. It's pandemic throughout all of society. You know, it's... You guys know. The survivors know. The listeners know. You guys know what's going on. Um, his name's Paige Patterson. He's the president of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. All right. This sad. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Is there ever be? Cool. I'm right here. All right. All right. So how are we starting this? Tell us your truth, Jay. All right. So I've... This is going to be tough. Uh, this might be a little meandering. I've, Meandering is what we do. I've, I've been struggling with how to talk about this my entire life. Um, and I have a tricky and interesting challenge for me, which is that, like, it's not... It wasn't until, honestly, as recent as about a year and a half ago that I started being able to truly name what I experienced abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, even though, like, I think I always kind of understood it on some level. And part of the reason is because, like, I didn't experience a lot of violence, Um, like spankings, switchings, um, some shoves and slaps, but like that was about the extent of it. Um, and that, that wasn't often, and I could rationalize it as a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, I could rationalize it as an adult even. Um, I didn't feel unloved per se. Like a lot of it came down to verbal stuff. 
and and emotional tactics and also like the use of power and non-violent ways or implicit like violence. And so for a long time I just didn't didn't think of it but the, the best way I could describe it in a short soundbite is that I grew up in a five-person cult. Mm-hmm. Four person when I was born but then I have a little sister now. And um uh so my family is Southern Baptist. Um, oh. bringing it back around. Uh, but they are their own particular variety of Southern Baptist. Um, they are by the book literalists. Uh, they, they, but they interpret the Bible themselves. Uh, they interpret it in the light of like a viewpoint that aligns Republicanism with uh, um, Christianity mm-hmm. uh, explicitly. And also, they very explicitly taught us from a very young age to distrust everybody outside the immediate family. Mm-hmm. And, like, to the extent of, like, even, like, close cousins, I was told to never trust them because they weren't really my friends. Um, I wasn't really allowed to hang out with friends outside of school. Um, I didn't start hanging out with friends outside of school until I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, then which I, they started giving me a measure of freedom. Partially because I was a man, and man men earn more freedom as they approach adulthood in that kind of hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, I was deeply, deeply terrified of hell. Um, I had like like I th- I've heard the term spiritual trauma thrown around. I don't know like exactly what that means because I I think spirituality is a wibbly wobbly kind of term. Um, but like literally like nights upon nights of me like being absolutely convinced that I was going to hell forever for eternity and my parents were very literal that it was hell hell like Mm -hmm. you were and the thing the reason why is because you were asked to do a ritual in which you asked jesus into your heart and you're supposed to feel a change and i never felt a change and so then obviously i'm broken Mm -hmm. um and instantly that throws the divide in there um but the biggest i think the earliest red flag is like so there's a story um that i haven't really ever told almost anyone um I was this as an adult. This is a major red flag for me. Um, as a kid, it was, but I it wasn't safe to think this. Yeah. yeah. So I had a kindergarten teacher, uh, as most people do, <laughs> and she was great. Uh, she was uh, probably in her sixties or so, and really charming and really kind, and I adored her. And she was my first teacher. She made me feel safe at school, and I was always a book smart kid, and mm-hmm. that wasn't common in, in my extended family. And, man, I just, like, I really admired her. But her big thing was that she was really, really passionate about finding and preventing child abuse and speaking out against child abuse. Which means that at one point, she asked the whole class to, for anyone to raise their head if they were ever spanked. And that spank, and then she just told us to our face that spanking was abusive and that wrong. And, we, and kids should not be spanked. And the thing is, I've been taught very, very early on that lying was a terrible, awful thing to do. Uh, so, of course, I first of all raised my hand because that was the truth. And then I also afterwards told my parents. And they chewed me out for hours about how I was going to get taken away because mm-hmm. of what I'd done. Um, and from then on after, every time I would be spanked, I would be taken into a room. Sorry, this is going to be triggering. Um, but that's, I guess that's the podcast. I mean, the whole podcast but is trigger warning. The whole <laughs> podcast is a trick. It's and, triggering. But what they would do is they would, there would be a ritual around it where they would tell you what they were going to do. And then they would like prepare the bedroom and like turn out the lights and turn the radio way up so that if you shouted, no, no neighbors could hear, even though like it was, the spankings themselves were not that bad, but the, like, like, like in terms of like, like, I don't ever remember the pain being that 
that big of a deal to me, but that ritual was terrifying. <laughs> like, like it's it's a nightmarish yeah. thing. The idea that like I I have to be concerned if you yell in pain because then someone will take you away. So I'm going to drown out your voice is pretty pretty like rough stuff. Um, I mean, there's a scale. I, I'm not gonna get into that. I uh, just. <sighs> Yeah, no, that's horrifying. Yeah. I mean, the I the physical pain is like nothing, but the fear stays with you forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sounds like a horror movie, Jay. But the main thing is that like verbal abuse was used to control. Like, and it wasn't constant. I know p- there's people I've heard stories where like it was an everyday thing. Rather, it was like there were all kinds of metrics and ways in which you were expected to obey and keep in line. And if you didn't, at any time, they could turn on you and you could be subjected to two, four, six hours of literally being sat in a chair and yelled at. Mm-hmm. Um, you weren't allowed to speak back. And the hardest thing is that your motives were implied. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was like seven, but no, I was younger than that. I was like six, five or six. I was caught in a lie for the first time. I was testing out lying because I had been taught earlier that you don't tell the truth all the time because apparently that's the wrong thing. Um, and so I test out lying in little ways to try to get away with things, which I think is a normal kid thing to do. I mean, it was, yeah. I was lying about things like... Very normal part, like part e- of child development. Eating, yeah. eating, a, like, eating a, like, like a cookie I shouldn't have. I, I don't remember when I was caught, but I was caught. And the thing is that, like, looking back, I know, and I think they, they'd set a trap for me. Mm-hmm. They knew, they'd known I'd been kind of, like, stretching the truth on things. So they waited, set up a situation where they thought I'd lie about something, caught me lying about it. And they looked me in the face and said... All right, you've lied to us. You're a liar now. We can't ever trust you again. Uh, maybe if you perfectly tell the truth for years and years, maybe we'll trust you again someday, but probably not. And like, and that became my label for the rest of my childhood, um, was that I was a liar. I was preemptively untrusted in disputes with like my siblings or mm-hmm. in general, um, and that would just be brought against me at random times. Like, like in... And this only kind of got worse as I got older and I went through my first waves of depression as a young adult in high school and started acting out in very little ways. Um, you know, things like like dressing a little differently or acting a little cocky or, you know, whatever. Like, like I, I, I rebelled in the smallest of ways, but it, it, my father increasingly rose up to match that. Like, like I think... I think as a male in the household, I was rivaling his authority, which uh, he was authoritarian. And so as I became increasingly depressed and then eventually suicidal, um, he became increasingly, he tried increasingly to, to quote, straighten me out, which Mm -hmm. involved a lot of just shouting, a lot of implying that I was worthless, a piece of shit, you know, shithead was one of his favorites. Um, just a lot of that. And, like, so that gives you the general kind of tone. There, There's, the, the, what's hard is that it's made up of millions and millions and millions of little stories. You know, like, like any one thing in isolation would just be like, oh, that was a time somebody was mean to you. But, like, the realization that I've had as an adult is that, no, it wasn't just even meanness. It was a system designed to prevent you from having authority over your own life. And to prevent you from having personhood. And to replace your internality with what they thought of you. That, um, <laughs> that's, that part's very familiar. Yeah. The replacing your internality. My... Yeah. This is all very familiar to me. I was also raised in a... Well, I was raised in Self-Realization Fellowship, mm-hmm. which is um, not a cult <laughs> world. <laughs> um, but my 
father's version of self-realization fellowship featured him as the spiritual guide of everyone in the family and hours of sermons of Nick telling us all that God through his realization through Nick's realizations and Nick's conversations with God and his hours of meditation he saw that we were worthless but he felt sorry for us and he loved us enough that he was going to stay with us and help us get to the level that he was at Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of like twisted up shit yeah. is like, like I was sexually abused. I was physically abused, but like the emotional abuse, like nobody who hasn't been there will ever understand it, how it was the worst Yeah. of all of it. Yeah. It's okay. Go ahead. I dismissed my own emotional abuse for a long, long time because I was never hit and I don't remember or sort of unremembered sexual my any sexual abuse that happened or was like oh it wasn't weird that wasn't strange I was uncomfortable for no reason but anyway I was emotionally abused and I did not validate that at all yeah but you have to like it's it's crazy that like just kudos to us for surviving yeah I mean Jesus Christ like how are you a victim of like I don't know that kind of like, I mean, th- th- these are the, like, you saying it was a cult, mm-hmm. you know, like, that's the way I started to think about my childhood, too, mm-hmm. was that it was almost like a little mini cult. Yeah. Um, and the ways that cults, there's specific techniques that cults use to control people and break mm-hmm. people down. Yeah. And those are the techniques being implemented by emotional abusers. Yeah. You know. Yeah, no, I had this watershed moment where I read an article in a psychology and publication. It wasn't a serious one. It was like Psychology Today or something. Yeah. But it was describing, I mean, it was a basic article describing, like, not just, like, what verbal abuse is. Because it's actually a more precise definition than I think a lot of people assume. And also why it's used and what it's aimed at. And, like, it talks about how, like... Verbal abuse isn't just, like, calling people names or shouting at people. You actually mix up your tactics to keep people on balance. You go quiet mm-hmm. and then loud, and 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 then you bring in love, and you make it kind only to, like, explode again. And, like, that, like, hit me so close to home. I, I, it was just, like, oh, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like the, the, it's weird how, like, when you're finally safe enough to, like, correlate these things, the puzzle pieces kind of snap into place. I mean, it's just so crazy because, like, that. I look back on, like, my experiences and I realized that I was, like, operating on so many different levels because, like, I was a little kid and, like, he was in my mind, you know? Like, mm-hmm. he would we would spend hours talking so he could, like, pick apart what I was thinking and then use that against me later to trap me. So it's like what you're saying where it's not safe for you to know that you're being abused. Yeah. But on some level, you had to have known because you got out. I, I honestly think part of the reason I got my depression got so bad is because I was so exhausted from expending the energy to perform and keep myself, like, as safe as I could. Yeah. Um, oh, I just realized something. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, was really... I was living with my my dad for like eight months in 2012, and like the entire time I basically spent on the phone with her telling me that my dad was uh, horribly abusing me, uh, and I was also really sleepy a lot. I was really exhausted all the time, constantly, and did in fact tell my dad at one point that I thought he was just like, that he was kind of an asshole, and that led to some terrible 
why would I let somebody live with me who thinks that I'm an asshole and all of this? Like, he threatened to kick me out onto the streets, like, like a fair amount, like, pretty regularly while I was there for, like, eight months and really, and came there because I was really struggling because I, with depression, like, I was like, Dad, help, can I live with you for a while while I recover or whatever? And he was like, sure. Anyway, I just realized why I was tired so much. Also, I had to keep track of my naps mm-hmm. in a public binder. I wasn't supposed to nap, like, at all, because that's not going to help your depression, is it? And then he would use my birth name. Mm-hmm. My dad has some thing with naps, except uh, they don't believe in depression. They believe in demons. So that's the thing. All the demons? I mean, like, so the thing is napping. that, like, I never admitted I had depression, so they never... But, like, my dad kind of figured it out and would, and would hand me books about, like, how to, like, place your faith in God to cast the demons out. Um, mm. But that, that allowed this, like, prosperity gospel sort of thing yeah. where it's, like it's the victim's fault for like how yeah. they feel and that no illness is valid. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the thing is that my dad wasn't explicit as like what you described with like the cult leader sort of thing. Cult is like, like, I don't know that you ran it exactly like a cult, but I think in fact, that's like what happened. Cause what happened was, is that like my dad considered himself a religious authority. They really believe the, the honor your parents sort of thing. And, but they also, they would tell you, that you should interpret the Bible yourself and find what you believe and enact it, except that guaranteed if you had a differing opinion on anything, that was wrong and evil. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah. and so in effect, it was the same thing. They would never come out and say that, that like, oh, I am correct. Yeah. But that, that was no, always the case, that was, that they, was that they were the voice of God, essentially, yeah. in yeah. the family, you know. That was how my dad was, except not about God. It was well, about everything. I mean, but like, we're not even talking about cults in terms of just like religious cults. Like there was the family in Australia and that I don't think was religious based. It was more just like she like kidnapped other people's kids and like kept them in an abusive situation. I just think abusive families, they're like a little microcosm of the kind of like social dynamic of a Mm -hmm. destructive cult. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to like think for yourself, but then if you think for yourself and you have an opinion that's different, you're evil. (laughs) They're, and wrong and bad. I mean, there's one of the awful. and disloyal and and destroying the family uh, like unity or whatever. Well, the, the, one of the little ways in which this like kind of like I had to grow out of it, like during a few of like my, me and my partner's first really bad fights. Um, all of our worst fights have always centered around moments in which our personal traumas intersect and we don't have coping mechanisms because we yeah. use each other to cope, which yeah. isn't always healthy. Because then, like, if you're both trying to cope at the same time. There, it's really hard to communicate correctly. And um, I had certain things I kind of inherited from... And one of them is that, like, when you're very emotional, you should shout. Yeah. Um, that's something I've learned to put a lid on um, and, 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 and to calm myself down before I do that. But the big one, the one that, like, I, I'm kind of ashamed of, but I think it's worth speaking out about, is there was a couple times where, like, we were having a big fight and Kay was like, hey... My partner, sorry. My partner was like, hey, I um, I need to go take a walk. I need to breathe a minute and get some space. I love you, but I just... And I, I would do a thing that was constantly done, which was, you can't leave right now. Yeah. And I, I never tried to restrain. Like, 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 I never... It was never physical, but it was like... It was this, like, if you leave right now, things are broken. Yeah. And, like, I panicked because I believed that on some level. And, like, it wasn't, like, until the second or third time I did that, I was like, what? Like, I, I, I promised her not to do it again, and I realized how, like, messed up that was. But it was, like, inherited this idea that, like, 
like if you're having a fight and people leave, that means it's broken. That means everything's broken. You know, like it was in, mm, it's not good. <laughs> yeah. My, my, I do that to this day. I'm like, don't you walk away yeah. from this? Like we have to work this. This yeah. is, um, this is our moment. Yeah. You know, we're having a moment yeah. and it's like, we're not having a moment. Yeah. <laughs> like, I always try to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One time Oliver and I were having a fight and he was like, tried to run into the bathroom because he had to throw up. Oh. And I literally like, like grabbed him by his shoulders and like kind of pushed him back into the room away from the bathroom. And I was like, you can't pretend to be sick every time you have feelings or something That's, like that. No, you just said I mean, sit with say. discomfort. Oh sit yeah. With the discomfort. I said, well, I don't know. I was like, you have to learn to sit with the discomfort. Like we have to be in this moment. And then he like, threw up all over himself. And then I was sick for a week. <laughs> he was sick for a week because he had the stomach flu. So, and let me tell you about running. Okay. <laughs> running is an important part of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so from the time I was in about second grade, I was taken to the cemetery to run. Um, we ran long distances. Um, Why the cemetery? The real reason is really sad. Um, I had a younger brother that died in my mother's arms after he was born when I was three. And I don't know that my parents ever 100% recovered from that trauma. Yeah. And like, this is one of the ways of which like it part of what's so hard about this is there's part of me that like really loves who my parents are. And like, I know that they've dealt with more abuse than they ever could have. I do think that in their way, they love their kids very much. I think that, that they tried really hard. I also think that they visited all that trauma on their kids. And I think they did it through an authoritarian and controlling impulse that was also filtered through a worldview that I find cruel at best. But, so that is why the cemetery. Also because it was safer and my parents were never allowed me out of sight, ever. Um, And there were less cars. They were overprotective in a lot of ways. which, again, makes you feel both loved and cared for, but yeah. then prevents you from developing basic life skills. The warmest place is under the dragon's wing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. And uh, so, so from very young age, I ran long distances. Um, but also from very young age, I was a pudgy kid. Um, I, I always struggled with... Well, I don't want to say struggled with my weight because that implies that somebody's body should be a certain way. But, like, yeah. but like I have body image issues, and I was um, a little bit overweight for you know in a clinical sense, and and my dad would increasingly like wanted to see constant performance increase, more distance, yeah. faster times all the time, um, to a degree that I now know is like even for people who are very very good runners, like you don't constantly try to improve your speed and time. My dad's theory was that if you just work harder and try harder and it's all mental willpower, but that's not the case. Your body has needs and like the best ways to do it involve sometimes going easy. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was very injury prone because of this and I would have to lie to survive because well, not to survive, but like, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like you're forced in a situation where you're either going to be yelled at constantly. I think that's also another big example of the way these scenes kind of self perpetuate is that like it's all these subtle interconnected like moves and counter moves of trying to like avoid what is essentially like kind of being torn apart by your parents verbally like like Mm -hmm. you're you're avoiding the situation which they sit you down and tell you how worthless you are for a very long period of time 
because you can't tolerate that for that long. <laughs> um, and and so, but then you end up behaving in ways you're actually legitimately ashamed of, even if you shouldn't be, because, you know, I didn't want to lie to my parents. I didn't want to, like, get my siblings in trouble. I didn't want to go fake being sick in the bathroom. Like, I, it, it's just this complicated thing, and it, it becomes so hard to talk about. It feels so weird and personal and like no one else could ever understand even though i think a lot yeah, of people go it feels through this. it feels weird and specific but yeah no i know exactly that. what you're talking about mm-hmm. and it is really hard and mm-hmm. that's one of the things it's like emotional torture i mean my dad would do the exact same thing he would like tell my mom he would get drunk and then he would tell my mom to come get me and then i would have to stand in front of him in the living room and he would just like sit there with like his whiskey looking at me for like, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. Uh-huh. And then he would just start telling me that I was a fat, cunt, bitch, piece of shit, worthless monster, never going to amount to anything. Mm-hmm. What do I have to say for myself? How dare I get a B on a test? I mean, and it doesn't matter. Like, it would, it was just anything. Mm-hmm. It was anything that they could criticize, right? Yeah. They, 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 my parents had a chair that sat across from their recliners that they would oh, call yeah. you to. The hot seat. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is actually, like, one of the funnier examples of this. Um to me, one time, uh, my dad decided that we, me and my older sister, walked funny. Mm-hmm. Um, the quote was, you walk like you have a corn cob up your ass. Oh, great. Um, so they took us uh, to the cemetery again and made us walk like 20 yards ahead of them. And then we just shouted at us every time we weren't like goose-stepping. But it's this awful thing where like, apparently your natural walk is wrong. Um, so you do this weird, awkward, stilted walk, and you straighten up your posture, but that's, like, not going to last for very long, and then you're shouting again, and, like, and, like, it's kind of, like, it's one of the funnier ones, because it's so weird, like, it's a weird thing, and at the time, even, like, we were kind of, like, rolling our eyes at each other, and, like, like, this is ridiculous, you know, but it's also the sort of thing legitimately starts getting in your head of, like, when you realize, like, oh, this is why, like, I just always feel weird in public, why I feel like... I'm a very weird person. <laughs> like, it's actually just because you were told that a lot. You were told that you did things wrong, you know? That, like, like basic human things were, like, unnatural or messed up about you, you know? I literally, I had walking training. Mm-hmm. I walked too much like a girl, and then I didn't walk enough like a girl, and then I was too duck-footed, mm-hmm. and then I was too pigeon-toed. <laughs> yeah, it's just, like... You have this realization that's always something, and that's also one of the things that I think brings on the depression is you really, for a long time, I think, hold on the idea that if you're just good enough... Like, one day yeah. you'll be good enough somehow? Yeah. yeah, yeah, like, you do everything right, and then, like, it's going to be fine. And then you realize, that, like, oh, wait, it's it's always going to be something. Yeah. And then you get, like, really... It's really depressing. <laughs> like, it's really legitimately, like, it's just like, oh, you yeah. know. I had a realization when I was 12... Uh, maybe I was young. I think I was younger than 12. I think it was more like 11. I don't know. It's all confused. You know, it all gets mixed up. It all blurs together. Mm-hmm. Um, I ha- had not twisted the cap back correctly on the lemonade bottle. And my dad took it out of the refrigerator and like turned it upside down to shake it up. Mm-hmm. And all the lemonade fell out. The cap fell off the bottle. The lemonade fell out all over the floor. And like six hours later, I was curled up in a ball and he was beating me with a chair and he was still screaming about the lemonade. And that's when I realized that he was crazy mm-hmm. and that none of it was real. Mm-hmm. What was your realization, Jay? 
So mine was piecemeal. I think piece by piece, I quit believing in my parents' religion. Mm-hmm. And that was a big part of it. Um, but that happened very gradually. The The lightning bolt, bolt, bolt moment when it was finished was when I actually, it was a moment in uh, when I was in high school reading Catch-22. And uh, Yosarian has a line about um, just just basically how, like, if from a theological view, how how there's basically no excuse for the way the world is. And I just, like, agreed with him, like, instantly, intuitively. And I knew at that moment that as much as I've been trying not not to believe that I didn't believe anymore, I was like, actually, no, I, I totally agree with this. And, oh, oh, well, I have to deal with that now. Um, but it was a lot harder. I think, I think it became inevitable by the time I became a young adult and I was very depressed because I knew enough about the world and myself to understand that I didn't agree with my parents. There were moments that I tested, like, all right, so here's an example. I tried really hard during that period to try to find bridges. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, okay, so I fundamentally, I don't believe what my parents believe. I fundamentally disagree with some of their worldview, but surely, like, we can connect somehow. Like, surely these people, like, and so I remember one of my tests was, like, I, we were talking about uh, the Iraq War. Um, politics is always a tricky subject, but I tried to find a theoretical situation in which, like, I could argue my point of view from some way. And I couched it as not really being my point of view, um, but I was trying to have a proxy discussion. So the, the scenario I came up with is, like, all right, so, presupposing, and I, I made it very clear, I was, like, presupposing the idea that we only went to war, and I'm not saying I agree with this, we went to war purely to access oil. I think that would be immoral. And the response was, America has to get what it needs, and honestly, we should nuke them to dust. If I was the president, I would nuke them. And I said, you, you can't nuke people. That doesn't fit Christianity. No, it doesn't. And, and like, I realized that, like, and I think that was one of the big moments for me. That was, that was actually a very deep, like, like where I, I managed to, like, I, I dug thinking for sure I would hit some kind of pay dirt. Instead, I hit rock bottom. <laughs> like, and um, it was really, really hard for me. Um, and so but I, I think I came to the point where I realized that to a certain degree, he was just taking things out on me. He was just doing it to do it. Yeah. And like, and because he, had, he was mad about work or he yeah. was angry in general or he'd been listening to conservative talk radio. That, that happened a lot. We're like, and... Yeah, so the, I mean, it was it was moments like that. It was moments where I realized that whatever else was going on, what was happening was unjust, unjustified, and not related to anything, and not related to even trying to improve me. Yeah, you know, or anything. You know, it's, it's just it's just, just happening. It's just happening. Yeah. yeah, and it's complicated and weird because I still like maintain a relationship. For another reasons, but one of them is that since I met my partner and we were married and we're a very, very het presenting couple, like they've largely been very good to me all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm married, so they feel that they should largely leave me to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're a man. Yeah, but you did it. You got there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Congrats. And well, yes. you're. I mean, also the gender. I think, right? Because you're um, like. It's a combination. Older sister. Is she married? Mm-mm. But she's an that's adult. The, but that's their chief goal for her, is for her to get married. Yeah. Um, 
It's a combination. It's both things. Yeah. Um, it was never this good until both things happened. Um, it's made it to where now we can go and have a visit, and it's very pleasant. But also a weird thing. I don't know if I'm allowed to use this word. I think it describes the effect. I, I kind of code switch. Um, I know that that's a very specific definition, but what I mean is I literally inhabit a dialect that I don't have any other time just around them. Mm-hmm. That is purely defensive. And it is performative, and it's very friendly I can't even do it like when I'm not there, but it's very country and it's very, it's very upbeat and it's joking and laughing. It's very loud and yeah, it makes me feel safe. Can we say the state? Indiana. No? Yeah. Okay. Sure. It's very like Indiana. Yeah. 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 And, um, aggressive friendliness. Yeah. I've seen that before. Very, very light yeah. and laughing. It reminds me of that, that clip from Goodfellas of Ray Liotta, like laughing really loud because he's so <laughs> terrified of his mob friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't know. It's, and it's weird. It makes me feel ridiculous because there's a sense in which it's, it's like, oh, they're, Sometimes I get fooled and like there's nothing to be afraid of because I'm never going to be there again. But that all really still happened and it all still lives yeah. in me and it's all in my nervous system and it's all in the way we interact and it's all there under the surface and it makes you feel a little crazy. I don't like to use that word anymore, but but like I think it's valid for that kind of sense of insecurity you feel when everything just seems normal. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. No, I don't. The, the continuing relationship with your abusers is really a struggle for, for me. Like, I still talk to my mother, and my mother still lives with my father, and they're still married. And when I told my mother that my father had sexually abused me, she, like, called me a liar. Yeah. And I thought, well, we'll never be able to have a relationship. But, like, we still we still do. But it's like so weird. Mm-hmm. It's like it's not really you, and it's not really. Her. But like all you said this before, like everybody in your family, like except your mother, was like, "Oh yeah, we believe you, yeah. and we've known this whole time." Yeah, and we don't. Why are you well, bringing it up? And they don't talk to you now. That's the thing. Is like, I wish it was like easy. I wish you could just be like, these are the good people and these are the bad people, or these are the abusers and these are the non-abusers. But literally, when I like disclosed about the sexual abuse, like the only person in my life who was there for me was my mom. And she was the only person in my life that didn't believe me, but she did believe me because she caught him when I was six and she stopped him, but she never left him, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's just that, that horrible kind of thing. It's like you saying like your parents really loved you. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, but they still did those things to you. And it's like, like having to accept that both. I have these people that I feel great affection for that. Also, I feel this like, I will always feel a tragedy of the fact that I will never be able to talk to them about this and have them recognize even just my pain about it. Just even recognize just the simple fact that, hey, all this really hurt me and almost killed me. Can't and won't happen. And if I did, they would instantly, like, because I tried once, actually. Uh, I tried to broach this conversation uh, as a young adult a little bit when I was a little bit out of the household. And I framed it simply as, you know, I think some of the ways you guys treated me was during certain fights we had wasn't kind, like, and, and, and really hurt me. And, and, like, I got about that far before I was subjected to about three hours of them literally wailing and crying and how could you do this to me and we're yeah. so hurt and you're going to give your mom a heart attack. 
Um, which is also one they really like is like is like you're such an awful person that you're literally going to kill us through through the emotional trauma you're causing us by expressing that you're having any pain whatsoever, and like and it instantly goes to such an extreme degree, and it's like you know I'm still here you know I'm I'm here trying to connect with you, and you don't want that you want me to be what you want me to be yeah and you don't care about my internality you don't care whether I'm happy. You want me to be happy for you. Yeah. And so there's there, there's always something that will be broken there forever. And it will yeah. never be fixed. And I just have to accept that. Yeah. Um, whether we have a relationship or not. And, like, I also have to live with the fact that we have, like, a nuclear button. That's like, oh, if things ever get bad again, we just cut off ties with everybody. Yeah. Like, 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 we have a protocol in place. <laughs> it's like... I mean, you have to have that. Yeah. That's really important. Like, to... Mm-hmm. Like, have in your mind, there's a point where I'll walk away. Mm-hmm. And, like, know what the line is. Because mm-hmm. otherwise you risk, like, just mm-hmm. going right back into, like, being being abused. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I know. It's, it's so... I think the emotional thing is so much... It's I can't say it's more complicated. I've not experienced, like, severe physical abuse. But it, it is so complicated. It just is complicated. Like, just objectively. It's just such a... It's thorny. <laughs> it just... It, it, it feels wrapped all through you you know and like it's nice to be able to talk about this with people who understand i think that's why one of the things this podcast serves because like it really does it felt like your own personal little cage you know it just lives inside you and how do you ever describe it to anybody how do you even start i mean like i tell these stories about running and church and all this stuff like they come as weird tales where healthy, like, non-abused people go that's really weird wow (laughs) Why would they do that? Or even worse, they're like, well, that doesn't sound that bad. Mm -hmm. And there's just, like, nothing you can... Yeah. They'll never understand, like, what... Mm -hmm. How your whole world was ending because of the cap of the orange juice and how Mm -hmm. everyone was going to die because of it. And Mm -hmm. Yeah. Occasionally, uh, uh, because I'm not very self-aware, from time to time, I'll say something. uh, I, I don't even, like, realize that I'm about to talk about, like, um, like, that's, I don't even realize that it's about to be, uh, abusive stories from Oliver's childhood mm-hmm. hour, uh, or whatever, like, seg corner, um, and, uh, I think the other, like, recently, I was just, like, one time, my, uh, my dad made me ride this, this, uh, this roller coaster in Silver Dollar City, and I cried really hard, and I was only four years old. <laughs> I don't know, like, and, like, there were several people in the group, and, like, some of them, like, went quiet and were, like, well, everybody went quiet, and some of them were, like, and others were, like, and I don't know, it's just, like, it's just, like, why did he say that, and, like, why did I say that also? Sometimes I mean, non-sequiturs come out, but... I mean, there's a, um... There's a there's like a running, a running statement among my closest friend group that like all of Jacob's childhood stories are sad ones. <laughs> yeah, and like and like that's not exactly true. Like I do have happy childhood memories, but like but, but the, the things that come out, the things that like like there's just a lot, and a lot that you don't realize how it sounds until you say it, and and largely that that statement is like said in solidarity because most of my closest friends usually have experience with trauma and. Uh, and or poverty and mm-hmm. so like we we connect over that you know because um, it's hard you know 
something me and my partner often say to each other is like, what would it be like to not have trauma? And like, and like, I don't want to make it some identity thing exactly. Uh, but there is a level to which like, and I, I respect and I have lots of friends who are, but like, if you don't have some kind of trauma in your past that I can connect with you over, I don't understand how to get to you past, a, get closer to you past a certain point because all my points of reference stop making sense once you get to know me. <laughs> I will say I, I've had, I've had that thought before. Like can, as like a survivor or as a person that like has PTSD or has gone like, I don't know. I kind of think of like, you know how in like fighting movies or whatever they talk about like, the, or in basketball, like they talk about the zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like the, the space you go into where like you're in this altered state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever been in the zone? Mm, not very sportsy. I mean, but like as a, my experiences with the zone were as a, as a person who was being abused, Oh, I see what you're you know, saying. like, like there were certain times and it's, it's, it's like PTSD. It's like hypervigilance. It's like what kind of what you're describing where you're like always prepared, always thinking so, hyper alert. So the thing is, is that I think I was almost always that way. Yeah. And I don't think I realized until certain things put me back in that context. Um, I don't think I realized that I had probably some level. I don't know if I quite rise the level of PTSD exactly because the definitions are definitions, but like I have had waking flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it sounds like PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Having flashbacks. I mean like, but like the first time it happened, I was like, wow, this is happening. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, like it really was like a movie playing in your head and, yeah. and like, um, and yeah, no, I, I, I do know what you mean, yeah. Like, like I get that way um, a few different times. It, it's not always clear what triggers it, but yeah, yeah. you get. It. And it's sometimes hard for me to pick out from just anxiety, which is also a thing I, I deal with. You know, and I think is very common. But, but yeah, no, that kind of like you're on watch, you know. And yeah, no, I I, I get some of that for sure. Yeah. Well, I, I had read that it was like it's actually like a like a chemical thing happens in your brain, mm-hmm. and you actually like enter an altered state of consciousness and it happens uh as a result of trauma or like like war or different things where you Mm -hmm. feel like you're like in in danger and you become like hyper alert yeah and like my experiences with it are like like I always felt like I was like really hyper alert all through my childhood. I mean, my dad would like every, every day be like, "Well, this is the day that you're gonna die." Mm-hmm. Sometimes, mm-hmm. and sometimes he was your best friend, mm-hmm. right? Um, and he would protect you from everything else that was terrible in the world. But um, every once in a while, I would like really think that I was gonna die, and then I would like my vision would go red, mm-hmm. and then it would clear. And then everything would be moving really slowly mm-hmm. and have like these weird trails. It's sort of like being high, uh-huh. you know, but if it's like you have this weird clarity and you're like, oh, I understand. Oh, sorry. I, <laughs> I have an example of this that's non-abuse trauma. Oh, my God. Tell yeah. us. Tell so us. would you like to know the story about how I learned about mortality? Yeah. I was five years old. We went to a public pool. I was just like about five feet, which is just enough for me to like get toes in. Mm-hmm. And somebody hit me in the back of the head, like like a kid jumping into the pool or something. You know, somebody bumped, like smashed into me, and knocked me horizontal, but in a way that I I, I did not know how to swim at all. And I was completely underwater. I'd inhaled some water, and I um, 
and I couldn't get my feet to touch surface or floor. Like, like, mm-hmm. and I just couldn't. And I was stuck there. And I, I don't know if I floated the deeper end or what, but I was under for a while. And I was like, I had this very clear thought. I was just like, it was, it was actually very calm. It was just like, oh, this is how I die. I haven't been here this long. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and, like, and I like how to pull me out. Like, like I was blacking yeah. out as they got yeah. me out of the pool. And like it was, I didn't have any long-term damage or anything, but it's just this crystal clear moment I had of just like, I'm going to die. <laughs> like... It's like, it's like the place beyond fear. Yeah. You know, it's like the calm beyond fear. Oh. Yeah. I, I personally I've think... I've been lost until this moment, and now I am like, oh, okay. I personally think that there's people who have been in the zone, and there's people who have not been in the zone. Mm-hmm. You know? And, like, whether you're, like, an abuse survivor, or mm-hmm. you were in a war, or whatever happened to you. And I think that, like, what you were saying, it can be hard to connect to people who haven't been there mm-hmm. because I feel like you, there's a difference that can be sort of felt. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons that I think like we struggle so much in our society with like abuse survivors and veterans and also people disbelieving people, victims. Yeah. Like I think, I think a lot of that comes from people who've had very good, like reasonably good experiences in life and can't yeah. imagine that situation. Literally for can't comprehend it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they're the people who are like, well, that's a weird thing. Yeah. Or they're like, yeah. Oh, that doesn't sound so bad. Yeah. Like the people who are just sort of mystified. I mean, you want them to be mystified and baffled. You want them to be like, nothing bad has ever happened to them. I know. I sort of love those people. They're you know? like, oh, I'm like, oh, you precious thing. Yeah. Stay there. I, they look so confused. And the good ones seem very concerned. But I, I told Oliver this one of the first times we were chatting about this, um, which is that one of my things I kind of sniff out for new people like to see <laughs> like, like how, how much I'm willing to, to let, 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 let you in on like kind mm-hmm. of who I am. Um, is I see how you react to the question to two two statements of like, like oh I'm just tired I'm feeling tired and the reason why there's different kinds of expression of it or how you react to somebody canceling because they're feeling tired or like canceling plans like I don't cancel plans but I'm just not Machiavelli it's just like something I keep an eye out for if that happens because like you know you know about spoon theory which is something that like do you I know about spoon theory I. Remind me. I have some issues yeah. about spoon theory. I don't know. Well, I think I've talked, told you about it. It's like um, uh, with uh, like chronic illness and depression and stuff. Like you have a certain number of spoons and you spend them on different activities throughout the day. And sometimes you oh, run out. Oh, you have told yeah. me about that. Yeah, it's, it was originally conceived of in terms of chronic pain. And like I don't. This isn't really about like the validity of the metaphor because that's not really like right. Like what I'm interested in. It's just that like that's a very real experience for us. And I think it works differently for like anxiety and mental illness than it does for chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My partner experiences chronic pain and so we've had both sides. Um, and very often I'm tired or I can't go because I'm not feeling well and you just stay in is a euphemism for I can't or yeah. I shouldn't mm-hmm. and I'm taking care of myself. And like I think there's people who kind of get it and people who kind of don't. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if, if somebody asks me how I'm feeling and I say I'm tired, what I probably mean 
is my head's a little bad. <laughs> like, like, but I can't say that, and I'm not going to, and everyone understands what tired is. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You said something that was pretty funny that was like, somebody was like, eventually just burst out, somebody who didn't get it, yeah. was like, you sure are tired a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, sure am. Oh, God. What's with that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why are you tired so much? Tired so much. I don't know. I've reached a place where I feel like a lot more able to cope with a lot of it, which is really good for me. But like, like there were times where I thought I would never, ever, ever. And like, I think there are also things that were never really heal. Like, like that's just part of it too. Um, and I think talking about it as part of the process of figuring out how you get by and how, how you can make certain things better, you know? But hopefully, uh, learn to break cycles. Yeah. Um, because yeah. I've, like, I already know that, like, in my relationship, I've broken some cycles. You know, like, like and part of it is learning to process and then iterate and move forward and heal some things. You know, you heal. I don't, I, I'm really, really, really careful with the word heal. I don't like it. I don't like, I don't think it's valid, but, like, I don't have a better word right now. I think part of it, I, I came with some words, I think wisdom is to be gained to a certain degree. I think I think self, self-knowledge self can be gained to a certain degree. I think empathy. I, I think, yeah. I think you know, I don't know that it was a fair trade, um, but I don't think I would be, I would have the empathy I have. Um, I don't think I would have the emotional skills I have if I wasn't who I was. Um, I'm not one of those people that gets to the place where I say, I wouldn't have had it any other way. That's bullshit. But what I can say is that I can take up the things I pulled away from it that are positive and, and value those things and be proud of myself for the qualities I have. Some, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, sorry. Some terrible therapist once told my mom that she, uh, if she felt like she was stronger after her experience with my, uh, mm-hmm. with her, abusive ex-boyfriend, my, my father, mm-hmm. that she should, in, in some way, shouldn't she thank him? Oh, God. Oh God. And she has repeated, God. inflicted this on me as well. Well, but, but something I will but, say. I mean, it's not, I mean, it's a terrible thing that no, was done it, to her, but also, like, no. But something that, like, I do think is valuable is, like, it's kind of corny, but, like, it's been helpful for me sometimes to go ahead and affirm the things that, like, the, the things that made me a better person. Um... And I just kind of divorce them from how how I got them, or I just accept that as part of my story. Like I, just, I think acceptance is like kind of like it's just like, you know, you don't have to do this this thing that people want you to do, which is to make it a good thing or make no. it all fair. No, or fine. it wasn't good. But 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 you can come away with who you are now, and I think I think to try to learn to value yourself. At least it's what I strive towards. Because yeah, know. I mean, there's that poem. In response to the It Gets Better campaign. What was that poet's name? I can't remember. I don't remember the poet's name. Oh. You were the one who was so obsessed with it. There, I liked it. There was but... a poem that a woman wrote in response to the It Gets Better campaign, and she was like, you know, uh, it doesn't get better, you get stronger. Mm-hmm. 
It was really good. And what my mother used to say is that you choose your parents Mm -hmm. as a soul coming into this world. Mm -hmm. You choose your family. You choose the struggles that you're going to go through. Mm -hmm. And it's all a lesson. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to teach you something. You're being tested, yeah. Yeah. And I... You're choosing the test for yourself, like, before you get here. And, like, I bought into that as a child because you do, you know? And then, like, now I look at, like, my five-year-old nieces and I just, like, like, feel physically ill thinking about telling them, like, if their dad was, if their dad, my brother, was, like, beating them, and they came to me, and I was, like, you're learning a lesson? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Yeah. No. My God. Like, mm-hmm. oh, Jesus. Well, and there, there, there's another flip side to that, which is that, like, like, if you want to try to take this tack that, like, oh, you're, these things that happened to you made you this great good person, where, like, you also have this separate tragedy, you think, which is, like, well, what would have I done if I hadn't had any of this and I would have been supported? And, like, I don't know. It's just, that's a that's a toxic... Yeah, no, that's... Also, cesspool. see the, the survivor Venn diagram, the survivor-abuser <laughs> Venn diagram, where most abusers are survivors. All right, I'm going to suggest a segment. Okay. A segment. Well, because this is, like, a very heavy podcast, and the oh, heaviest yeah. part's at the end, because... It, well, the, the last half, because it's all... So... Why don't we have a weekly coping mechanism? Oh, we actually oh, do have survivor do tips. We have survivor tips. Oh, you do, don't yeah. you? Yeah. So. It's been a while since I listened. I'm sorry. Oh, you've listened. Yeah. Oh. We didn't do it. We forgot to do it on the last episode. Gotcha. We didn't have any tips on the last episode. The last episode was we a little bit a little a little bit lighter at the end anyway, though, because I just started listing facts about Patrick Stewart. Like, yeah, it'll be a show when he was 19. So I love yeah. Patrick Stewart. Sometimes our survivor tips are coping mechanisms, and sometimes they're um, it takes fifteen pounds of pressure to rip off a human or charge your phone charged. <laughs> Keep your phone charged. All right. Well, I think I'm ready to move forward. If you are, I think so. It, you have you have your survivor tips? tip. Yeah. Do you have your survivor tip for this week. Sure. Um, do we want? So when you do survivor tips, because I, I, I'm forgetting the format very well, do you want something big or something little? It doesn't matter. There's no it's format. Really it's whatever you very, want. I've been very lost at this Our point Our format in is nothing. A lot of times, because there's no, <laughs> it's no guidelines. Gotcha. Bailey's just like, what's your survivor tip? And I'm like, uh-uh. Uh, uh. So my survivor tip is if you're doing something and you feel miserable... First of all, it's okay to feel miserable, but, like, you don't want to. You're feeling a way you don't want to feel. You're having a feeling with something you're not dealing with well or you don't want to deal with right now. Just do something different. That sounds really dumb. But for a long time, when I, like, if I was depressed, I would just keep doing the exact same thing I was doing. And there's a lot of inertia. And so my new th- and the, the thing is that you go, well, what do I do? I don't know what I do. And I started, like, just going... This behavior is not helping, so I will do any other behavior. <laughs> like, yeah. literally anything. Like, like, it doesn't matter as long as it's different from what you've tried before. And that's how I've found most of my best coping me- mechanisms. That, like, when you... Because what you really need is a huge toolbox, you know? And how do you find those tools? And so my new way is just... If, if I don't have anything that's working, I just do something different. Even if I don't think it's going to work, even if I think it's stupid, even if I think I'm being dumb, just do something different and maybe it'll help. That's a good one. I like that. Yeah, that's really good. Oliver, what's your survivor tip? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, I should have been using that opportunity to think of one, but I said I was listening. 
and like nodding emphatically, like yeah, yeah, good. yeah that was a good listen. tip. You don't no, no, wait yeah, to speak. I'm kind of joking a little bit, um, but I don't, I didn't plan one. Um, I think my survivor tip is you should Google things. <laughs> <laughs> um, this isn't really a survivor specific tip, um, but it can be because sometimes you need to Google things. My survivor tip is to ask for help. That's what it is. Oh, okay. That's what I'll bring it to. And probably ask Google for help. Sometimes sometimes you should ask Google, Google for help. It. Just Google it. Actually, no, I have one now that I've been rambling okay. for a second. Um, um, this is a little bit self-directed, but like um, taking responsibility uh, for your own um, like well-being is really important. Figuring out how to deal with a meltdown that you're having uh, is something that I didn't, I don't, I think I really thought that I didn't have any control over any of my emotions, like, ever, and I thought that emotions were things that you didn't, you, one just did not have control over them. Like, one just did not have any influence or power over one's emotions. They were just things that happened to one. Um, but that's not actually totally true, although it's, like, can be challenging or difficult to um, figure out how to deal with them. But, um, yeah, if you, like, but you can. You just stole Jay's because he was just like, just do something different. And you were like, you have control. Um, do something different. It's just like a variation of what he said. I guess it is. I'm really far away from the microphone. Google, though. Google things. I think Google things is fine. <laughs> <laughs> Google things, Google or DuckDuckGo. Um, no, DuckDuckGo is terrible. Every Ecosia. time you try to do DuckDuckGo, it's Ecosia terrible. Ecosia plants a tree for everything you search. Okay. Um, my survivor tip today is this week, this two-week period, is um, when you're like, like in blackout depression mode and you're having a lot of like self-harm thoughts, uh, there's ways that you can... like get the same kind of like endorphin rush that you get from cutting without actually doing yourself like long lasting, like physical scarring. Um, so you can cut your hair. That's a really good one. Oh yeah. Um, that actually, I if started you, doing that and stopped cutting. Yeah. It really helps. Like cutting your hair really helps. I, uh, every time you think about like, you like are thinking about cutting or you're thinking about like, true facts um, from someone who used to self harm. I started cutting my hair. I just shaved it all off. Yeah, it it More gives you once. that it gives you that same like kind of weird sense of like freedom and control at the same time, but like weird rush. You can also like uh, if you cutting your hair is a little bit drastic. I would say like first try cutting your nails. Honestly, like try shaving. Try cutting your nails and your fingers. If you need more drastic, cut your hair. Cutting your hair is really good. And if it's really bad, I started um, giving myself stick and poke tattoos as an alternative to cutting. And uh, now I have a whole sleeve of hand-poked tattoos and... No, not really. Not that bad. I just always felt so pathetic. I would, like, get a knife out and I would be like, well, this is pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) I I felt that too, but I also still did it. But then I would spend, like, four hours uh, hand-poking a flower into my arm. I mean... I learned to play guitar just so I could play Elliot Smith songs. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's a version of self-harm. 
I always really love that scene in uh, The Royal Tenenbaums where he's playing, there's like an Elliot Smith yeah. song, and mm-hmm. he's like staring into the mirror. It's he shaves. Mm-hmm. He shaves. Oh, yeah. He cuts off all his hair. He cuts off all his hair. He buzzes he his shaves. head. He shaves. And then he gets halfway done with shaving. He says into the mirror, I'm going to kill myself tomorrow. And then he kills himself immediately. Except or tries, tries, tries to. Tries to. Spoilers, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. He does not succeed. He okay. tries to. He slits his wrist with the razors that he's using to shave his face. It's very, it's not that, like, it's just, it's just so, like, I, like, just, I just, it's very, the feelings that I feel when I watch that scene are just like, oh, yeah, yeah. No, that movie was really important to me. Yeah. Really, really, really Even important. before yeah, I started really cutting, film. I saw it and I was like. It really, cause but I after to, I started cutting, it was a much more important. That scene was much yeah. more important to me. I used to get up every morning and look in the mirror and be like, "Are you going to kill yourself today?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when he like looks in the mirror and he's like, "I'm going to kill myself tomorrow," and then he does it, I was like, "Oh man, this yeah. is my experience." Mm-hmm. And I, then we find out Wes Anderson is a rapist. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, change one letter. <laughs> okay, so we usually end the podcast by saying, "There's a war going on out there." And in the immortal words of Audre Lorde, your, your silence will not pr- protect you. Oh, yeah. You, you can say one of the parts. Which gotcha. one do you want? Um, I guess take the last one. The silence will Okay. Cool. Okay. All right, listeners. There's a war going on out there. Survivors. What? Survivors. Oh, we don't sorry. have listeners. We have survivors. Okay, you do it. On the survivor team. Okay, you do it. Survivors. There's a war going on out there. And then the immortal words of Audre Lorde. Your silence will not save you. Thanks, everybody. Now we're going to have our vote. The Tribal Council has convened. Three three people entered. Two will remain on Survivor (laughs) Island. Um, Who who will be the one that's unlucky? I don't know how they do these announcer voice things. I don't know. I literally never watched the TV show Survivor. I don't know what happens. Like Jay, you've been voted off the island. You've been voted get out off. of here. You will not be recurring there. I week. didn't get a rose. Not good <laughs> enough. That's a different show. I was gonna make a rose joke and then I didn't. I didn't know you don't how to get land the, it. You don't get the conch shell. I didn't know how to land it. Mm. That's piggy. I think they, they, they put out a torch or something. There's a torch. There's some. There's, there's always some torches, torches. And there's like tiki. There's tiki torches guys. and there's like fish. <laughs> that's what I know about. And, and that's all you need to know and about. You have life. to be able to build a fire, I think. In this world, you need torches. Also, need sometimes fish. there's pizza. Jay, you don't get any pizza. You didn't win the challenge, so you don't get the pizza. You and this, Cheerio are off the island. Listen, give a man a fish. Feed him for a day. Give a man a torch. He torches the fish. It's more yeah, he delicious. Can't cook the fish. Yeah. Also, if you uh, if you light a fire for a man, then you keep him warm for a day. If you light a hey, man you guys. on fire, hey, you guys, you keep him warm you know for the rest of his life. You know how there's a murder of crows, or like a suicide of ravens. Oh, what do you call a group of white people? A podcast. A podcast. It's a podcast. <laughs> you guys get it? A group of white people in the wild is any. Jay told us that gathering. joke before we started, and I was just like, "That's the best thing I've ever heard in it, my life." Because we were like, com, an amazing website that's not a trash fire." <laughs> <laughs> well. We were like, "Oh, 
Jay, do you have any podcasting experience? And he was like, what? No. And then he was like, well, you know. And then I was like, all white people have podcasting experience. <laughs> yeah. All right, survivors. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and save a, our hosts some meddling. I'm, I'm a bad white person. In the famous words of Audre Lorde, your silence will not protect you. I had it in the podcast. You had to okay, end the podcast. I'm going to yeah. stop it. You actually have to end it there. <laughs>